Come on, let's give you a break. Okay? <laughs> All right. All right, here we go. Uh, all right, so I want to welcome you. We're in our series, Empowered. Here's what we're doing in Empowered. We're looking at the book of Luke, and we're seeing how God discipled his disciples because we're assuming that that's what he does with us, and in fact, we're observing him doing precisely that in and through us. And what I want to say is that um, two weeks ago, I, I gave what I still, what I believe even more strongly to be a word here that I asked you to discern. And that word was is that there was a new day, that there was a new day in the church. There was a new thing that God was calling us to. Now, this is not another sermon about LGBTQ issues. It is not. But, it, but that comment was provoked by something that had happened here locally, and I need to just mention it, and that is that Eastlake has decided to become fully inclusive as an evangelical church, the first evangelical megachurch in the country to do this. And evangelical basically means we believe the Bible to be true and we do things the way that the Bible says. And so they are, they are working on uh, convincing people that the Bible says, does not say that the homosexuality that they have in mind is actually against God's will. Now I have looked at, uh, well, I've watched the sermons and I've looked at most of the material that they're gonna be handing out to people. And let me just say, feel free to get a hold of it yourself, but it is remarkable how poor the logic, the theology, the exegesis, and everything is about it. I mean, I'm, I'm really shocked. There's, honest to goodness, I could make a much stronger case than what they're making, much stronger, okay? And it would still not be right, and I would still say, but here's why that's not ultimately what is being said, but I'm really surprised. I mean, it's been hard even to just kind of go, really, you're going to use that argument? You don't see what's wrong with that just instantly? But this is happening, and this is not going to be the only church that's going to do that. There's going to be a lot. And what I said two weeks ago was I said, I feel like there's been this sort of movement. We could keep going back, but let's just start with my father's generation. Father knows best, right? And in that point in time, the culture was Christian, and Christianity was the culture. Now, what wasn't so much in the church was love. God is love, and what he means the church to be is a loving body. And it's not to say that there wasn't love there, but it was expressed, you know, you, know, you see world leaders now hugging each other. You never saw that kind of thing back in the 50s. That would have caused war, okay? The bottom line is, is that when the 60s came, the counter-cultural revolution, it was all about love. And we can quickly go to the ways in which something that God was doing got perverted and corrupted into all kinds of problematic things. But the bottom line is I want to argue that God is the one who was moving on people's heart that what this thing was really about was love. And he did that remarkably. And if you remember in those days, in the later 60s and the early 70s, being in church, and that's right when I got saved, and... I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable, the love with, with people. This, a lot of people will say about this church, I've never experienced family like this. Every church that was like us in that day had that. I don't know what happened that, that we're, we still have that and that so many have lost it. I'm not trying to say that we're better than anybody else, we're not. But, but there's just something, there was an incredible amount of love. Now, as that love matured the body to the body, it needed to go where God took it, which was it needed to be a love for others, people that didn't know him, and genuinely loving them, the kind of thing where Jesus said, where it was said about Jesus that he's a friend of sinners. And God, honestly, the fact of the matter is in the last 20 years, 
God has done a remarkable job of changing the church to being an entity that really does love those who don't know him, recognizing that such were some of we. In fact, we were just like them, that God opened our eyes. They really don't see it, that we're not to judge, we're to love, and, and we, we come alongside and love. And, and in the media right now, you still get a tremendously negative sort of judgmental, fundamentalist perspective on Christianity, right? When you, TVs, movies, that kind of stuff. But honestly, that's not the way the church has been for at least 20 years. These are people that are writing from an experience that I think probably did have some merit to it, but it does not anymore for the very most part. There's a, for every Westboro Baptist, there's 150 to 200 churches like us that really do go out of their way to love and do everything that we can to love. But, but here's my point, and this is why this is important. What I presented to you two weeks ago was, is that a line got crossed as we always do, right? We always take the things that God is doing and we move them into areas that are not actually God. And we move this into an area from acceptance, love, and, and cherishing, valuing, digni giving human dignity to people, and doing all the things that we need to continue to do. But there came this point in time that I'm, I'm saying, and I'm presenting it to you for your discernment, really importantly, and we'll be doing it again today. But the bottom line is, is that what I think happened was, and I think that that, the East Lake decision was momentous. I don't mean to make a big deal about a local happening. I'm telling you, I don't do that kind of thing. If you've known me for very long, you know I'm very wary of doing that kind of thing. But I really do believe that the Lord spoke to me and said that something, that that was an indicator of something to where he was now calling the church to something else. And it wasn't to come against the love. In fact, let me put it this way. What I think he's done, what I think he's done is, is that he has called us to an even deeper love than we had. Because here's what's easy to say to somebody. I love you. You're in behavior that God isn't pleased with, but I love you. We don't say that God isn't pleased with. We just say, I love you. That's easy to say, actually. Here's what's hard to say. But God isn't pleased with it. I love you, he loves you. But this is something that needs to change. There's a difference between, there's this thing that Jesus does with the woman caught in adultery, right? Where, you know, they're all ready to stone her to death and he says, who's without sin? Cast the first stone and nobody can. And so, where, woman, where are your accusers at? They're all scattered. Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus, right? That's the thing that he's taught us how to say. I don't condemn you. I'm here to be with you. I'm here to walk through with you. But there is this other thing that Jesus did, which was go and sin no more. He did call it sin. He did point to the things that Christ has as opposed to that. Now, if they don't receive it, it doesn't mean that they're horrible, rotten people, and you can write them off in your life and call them demons. It just means you've got to love them all the more. Because there but for the grace of God go you. How many times did you deny him before? Right? So the thing is, I think he's calling us to a deeper love that is genuinely loving in the middle of also saying something that they don't want to hear, which is, I'm sorry, but I can't accept what your behavior is, no matter what it is, if it's not lining up with the better that God has for you, right? And so I propose to you that there was a season that God is bringing us into that he was wanting us to not only take this love thing and take it deeper, but to do so in the light of telling the truth, being prophetic, speaking what his heart and his will is, his better way. That there's something that we have stopped doing. And as evidence of that, 
it would be that we've become so inclusive that we've actually assimilated the culture to a very large degree in the church. And if you do research on this, you will see across the board, you will see how true that is. And it, it, you know, we've never seen numbers like this in the American church, never. The things that people believe and the, the way that they hold scripture and is Jesus the only way and all these things that we take to be fundamental and we take to be absolutely foundational and they are, and that is not true. They don't believe that those things are true. The Bible is, you know, this and that, and they're Christians, right? So something's happened, and he's calling us to something else. So that's what I argued. And then Justine, last week, took it yet another brilliant next step. Because what she did is she went after this idea of, why is Jesus telling us something that we can't understand? And she said many great things, and so I'm just pulling out a main point summary kind of a deal with you. But what she said was, basically, in part was, there are things that you can't understand because you can't understand them. It's not that God hasn't even told you about them. One example that we talked about, I can't even remember if you used it in the sermon, was these prophets that go forward and see wars and they describe the beasts of war, but they're talking about things that nobody's ever seen before. And they're using language of the things that they have seen to try and describe them. And you place those, I don't know if you, know if you guys remember it, but I put an Apache attack helicopter up here and read the description in... Revelation, and my gosh, it was like perfect. It was like you, if you didn't have the way to talk about an Apache helicopter, these are the words you would have used. I mean, it was perfect. And I'm not saying that that's what it is. I'm just saying that there are things that will happen that even though you could know about them in some sense, you can't really know about them because we just don't. We just are not capable of understanding that suddenly things could become so radically different. Now, you hear that note right there? There's something coming that we can't comprehend because it's so radically different. Listen to me here. I, I went on my walks, as I always do, and I asked the Lord what he wanted to say. And he said something to me that I don't know how to say it. It wasn't hard, but it had something in it that was so serious that I had some issues with it. And that would be a euphemism for I struggled with it to say this. How do I say that? And, and love, and how do I say these things? And God showed me how to do it, and then I sat down to write the sermon on Thursday, and what happened was is that I got... Um, I dove too deep. It's kind of a longer section, and you have to read the whole section in order to get the flow of this incredible thing that we're going to see today. But I dove too deep in the first part, and I went, ah, geez, it's kind of long and complicated. And So why don't I just break it up into three? And I felt, I felt as I was writing it that I was okay. And as soon as I got done with it, I went, I didn't get there. In fact, I not only didn't get there, but I'm avoiding the hard thing. And you know the prophet Jeremiah saying, my bones burn within me? The, my bones started burning within me. And Friday morning, I went out and I prayed. I, and I just, no, this is, and Saturday morning, I went out and prayed again. And I, I'm telling you, this doesn't happen but once every couple of years. But the Lord told me to rewrite the sermon in order to get to where he wanted us to get, not where I want, not where I thought, well, we can do this. And you see what I'm saying? So uh, I do want to say something, which is have a heart, because I would normally chop down a little bit more and 
God, just pray. Okay, just pray that God says what he wants said and that I don't add anything else. Because we need to sort of stay a little bit higher to get through it and in order to really get it. Okay? So, but I want to say something. It was so dramatic in me what God did that it just made me go, okay, once again, you're just reinforcing to me that you really are doing something new and that you're inviting is too weak of a word. Commanding would be too strong. But that you're trying to communicate to your people something that is going on that is not in our hearts and heads. And he's trying to get us to understand it. This is important today, super important. Who's our prayer? Zach, that's great. Zach, you've got such a heart for evangelism and all that. Be praying for Zach. We're trying to figure out how to get this incredible evangelistic heart in some way that really gets to get full bloom on what that is. So would you pray for the sermon? Would you lift up another church too? Father God, we do come before you this morning. We pray for Kurt as he delivers this message that uh, what you have to say to us would come forth and be clear. Um, also, God, we just want to lift up uh, Mars Hill. And um, our brothers and sisters, wow. they just need to be um, in the middle of the herd. And so, God, we pray for the church. We pray for the, the various pastors there. Uh, we pray for... Um, just the hardship and the questions in the brain that, that we all go through um, when we don't understand. God, we pray for the faith to stay strong. Uh, we we lift up our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And uh, we pray for East Lake God. Amen. And we pray for Lake Sam in Jesus' name. Amen. I do pray for Ryan. I pray for East Lake. I'm praying that God would get a hold of him and open his eyes and let him see and what Satan meant for evil would become gloriously good, okay? It would become, in love, something incredible about, okay, this really is God's heart on it. By the way, I want to say something. If, if you want, if you have friends that don't understand this or you yourself are wrestling with it, we now have three sermons posted as part one, part two, and part three. They're not in that order, and they come they're over a period of two years, but they're sermons I've done on this, on the LGBTQ issues, and, and one of them goes into the logical arguments and one of them goes into the heart thing. That's the one I just did a little earlier. But one of them, the one that we just reposted was, why has God got a problem with it? If there is a God and he's got a problem, what's his problem? And so I just want to say, these, you, look at these for yourself if you want to get equipped, but send these out. These are sermons that have been circulated widely already and they have, they have been received well. Can I say it that way? You know, sometimes you'll send something to a friend that doesn't know the Lord and is in that lifestyle and they'll really be mad at you. That's not usually what happens when people receive these because they see the heart and they see what we're trying to get to and it's, okay, so that said, those are, they're on our website, you gotta go and look, they're gonna be a little bit, you have to search for them a little bit, but they're only a couple of weeks ago, okay? We posted them as if they were spoke a couple of weeks ago just so they'd be up front on the top. Zach, your comment about Mars Hill fits perfectly with the sermon. A year ago, could anybody have imagined that there would be no Mars Hill? Think about that. Tell me. Could it, but was it even in the realm of possibility that there was no Mars Hill? Now tell me that God's not doing something new. 
tell me that something's not happening. God is moving right now in a very strong and important way. The passage that we're in today, if you'll remember, we've been saying that Luke 1 through 8 and really 4 through 8 was college. That is watch and learn. Disciples, watch and learn. Christians, watch and learn. And then we get to chapter 9 where the first part of the master's program hits and he sends the 12 out two by two. Now we're at the beginning of chapter 10 and he's sending 70 or 72 depending on whatever. But the bottom line is he's sending more people out to actually do what they said in the missions thing, right? To actually not just be a hearer but a doer also. And there's another sermon coming after Herb next week. You really want to be here for Herb. This is going to be one of those do not hear, okay? And then the next week is going to be super important for us. So there's a kind of a one-two punch that God is still doing. But the point is, is here we are in this section, and I want to show you what this thing looks like. So here we go. And we're going to move right along. I don't have a whole lot of funny stories for you today, okay, because I want you to see this outline. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. Now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to even greet anybody on the road. Be about your task and get there. Now, just a couple of quick comments because they're important for what it is that we're getting to. First question, who's sending them? Who's sending them? Jesus. Who's the Lord of the harvest? God. Heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now watch. Here's why this is important. When you farm... Is it the farmer's responsibility to see that the wheat that was started as a seed and grew up in a stalk produces a new seed? Can the farmer do anything about that? Only a little bit, a little, he can plant, he has to plant, right? And then he has to, you know, if it's irrigation, like in my part of the country, or rain, you have to pray for rain, and then there's a little bit of fertilizing, but really, did any farmer ever actually produce a grain of wheat? No. Whose harvest is it? Whose job is it? Who's making, who's producing the fruit? Jesus, God. So if God's producing the fruit, the weight's off of you. Right? It's not up to you to produce fruit. It's up to you to plant the seed and to be an instrument of harvesting of bringing that in. If you don't, it'll just wilt in the ground. People that would have come to the Lord because you didn't go will die. See it? Now I want to say God in his sovereignty can still get to them, but let's leave that aside today because we want to be where we need to be today, which is if, they, if you don't get there, it doesn't happen. You see it? All right. But the point is it's not up to you to do the work of it. It's up to you to just be there and let him do the work through you. This is what Empower's about. The whole point of empowered is, if you try and do it in your strength, it ain't going to work. He needs to do it in his strength. Okay? Now, um, I just want to just walk you through, right? Jesus did the same thing. He is God. He could have done anything he wanted to do. 
but he emptied himself of his godly attributes and walked as a man so that he would be able to say, Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The Son of Man can do nothing by himself. Now that's just untrue, except that he used the word Son of Man. See what I mean? The Son. When he's talking about who he is, he's using this frame and he's saying, in my incarnation, I can do nothing by myself. I only do what I see the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that's what I do. Now that's what we're supposed to do, right? So here's my point. Here's the question. Because you've been called to make disciples, go into the world, make disciples, are you responsible to get to every single person in all the world that might need to hear about Jesus? Is that on you? As a harvester even. He's responsible for the fruit, but is it all on you to go to every single person in the world? Well, of course not. Santa's the only person that goes, no. (laughs) The Holy Spirit goes to every person. That's the one. Okay. But, But here's the deal. When Jesus is going about, how does he see what to do? When he sees the Father doing something, what's he saying? Here's our answer. It's our good old word, splachnitzomai. This is a Greek word, and what it means is, is it's the word that's in compassion. That's why I underlined it. But you have to put it with the words that come around it always, and it means filled with compassion. And the sense of the word is it means to be moved in one's bowels. When you hear... Somebody, I saw a picture of somebody just recently. And when I saw it, my guts flipped. You know what I'm talking about? It so grieved me that I went, oh. Now, experiencing God says this. God is always moving around us all the time. But the stuff that you see That's your invitation. I'm going to change that wording a little bit. When you see something that makes your guts flip, that makes your heart go out, that fills you with compassion, empathy, gut-wrenching empathy that reaches out in mercy to help, when you see somebody doing that, that's your invitation. You don't need to have God say, now you're supposed to go to that person. The fact that you had a gut-wrenching reaction to him is him saying, go to that person. So here's the point, see? Now watch. It, is, it would be reasonable for someone to listen to me for 10 years and say, Kurt's saying you can do nothing but ministry in your whole life. Now that's not true. There are green pastures, still waters, there's work, there's other things that happen in life. God gives us all kinds of seasons in our life, right? We are not supposed to be at work in his, in doing his thing 24-7. We're supposed to be available 24-7, ready in season and out. So there's going to be times when you're going to go through your day, fine, right? And you're good. You do what you're doing, you're good. But the thing that you're supposed to be doing is going through your day sensitive to those times when God might have somebody who he needs you to go to. He's called you. He's going to send you to that person for this reason. The reason why we have you do stop and pray, this thing that you put on your door, that's my door, and that's the stop and pray that sits on my door as I walk out my door. And when I see that, I move it around, because after I see something, you know, if you see something, I think it's like six or seven days, then you'll forget it's there. You won't see it anymore. 
So I move it around when I realize I've forgotten it. And then what I do is, is as I'm walking out my door, I stop and I do exactly what it says. Lord, who do you want me to reach out to as I go out? Who do you want me to reach out to? And then I walk out and I've primed myself to be looking. Interestingly enough, the next story that comes right after the one that we're looking at today is the Good Samaritan story. Where the religious guys were too busy to help because of their own agenda. See? So what I'm saying is, and what I'm going after is, if you want to know what God's calling you to do, do stop and pray. Be sensitive. And when God moves on you, go with him. <laughs> right? This is really not as complicated as we want to make it. I never hear from God. Have you ever had an empathetic moment for somebody else? You just heard from God. That's your invitation. Reach out. Okay? Deal? We good? All right, we can move on, right? So here we go. Now, now look, remember I'm sending out as lambs to wolves. Gee, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> well, but that's what it is. So him telling you what it is is nice. And what's really cool is, is look what he does. He says, don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals. Don't take anything with you. Can I show you how this is supposed to work for the disciples? Here they are. The disciples are, are having a moment with Jesus as he's sending them out and giving them instructions. Now, here's what happens. When they're actually on the road, put yourself in their shoes. When they're actually on the road and walking, he has told them not to bring anything with them. Now, he's telling them to do things that they've never done before. So what are they? Scared. Uncertain. What's going to happen? They don't know. So here's what God does. He doubles down on that bet. He says, I want you to go out not even know how to eat. And then watch me provide for you. Because as you see me provide for you, you might start trusting me. So that when I send you to the person that I moved on your heart to go to, you might actually trust me in that moment to do whatever I tell you to do then, too. You see it? See, the, see how it all works together? I mean, is that cool or what? Okay, I mean, Jesus is being so helpful here. Now, I want to say something. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a job and make an income and garden your home and repaint, right? What this means is, is in the seasons, when you're not on mission, do the things that are Proverbs-ish that, that make life work well. Do that stuff and do it well. But when God sends you, get rid of that worldly stuff as best you can and as hardened as you can. Because at that moment in time, this is not about your job. This is not about your provision. This is not about your relationship with them. This is about him trying to reach them through you. And anything you do to pervert that flow is going to harm them. You see it? So when you're on mission, trust him, period. You don't get anything else when you're on mission. When you're not on mission, fish, farm, that's what they did. Jesus still carpentered. Paul built, made tents. Do you see it? There's a whole lot of other life that happens too. But when you're on mission, be on mission. Okay? All right, now. 
Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Real quick, really cool thing. Adam, come on up, okay? This is what we've been saying in empowered. Here's what empowered is. Empowered is to be anointed. What does anointed mean? Literally, think of it as God coming upon you. And that when you minister, he's taking of what he's put upon you and he's putting it on them. Do you see it? That's what empowered is. It's giving them God. It's not doing miracles. It's not any of that kind of stuff. It's giving them God. All kinds of other stuff will happen, but who cares? Because you gave them God. See what I'm saying? So empowered is about ministering God to somebody. Now watch what he's saying here. When you walk into a home, you're to pronounce a blessing. How many people do that still? There actually are people in this congregation that do that. But seriously, how many people intentionally pronounce blessings on people that have blessed them? I mean intentionally pronounce a blessing. How many people in here? There's, there's quite a few. You get your hand up. You get to raise it all the way. I've seen you do it. There's quite a few people that still do it in this congregation, but most Christians don't do this anymore. You know why? Because we don't have any understanding of how important it is. Because here's what God is saying right there. Here's what Jesus is saying right there. He's saying that when you pronounce a blessing, it takes something of me and it puts it on them. Do you see it? And that'll change your life. And if you don't pronounce the blessing, that doesn't happen. That's what it's saying. Read it. Now do note something. It's not all on you. Because watch what happens. If they live there are peaceful, the blessing stands. It stays. If they're not actually peaceful people, it returns. Now, that's God doing that. It's not you having to go out and saying, you know, you didn't give me bread this morning, so I'm taking my blessing back. <laughs> but you do see something here, don't you? You do see, thank you. Thank you for blessing me. And bless you, because you have blessed me. Now watch, this is the same thing that happens when Jesus is talking to, to the disciples, and in particular he's talking to Peter, but he's talking to all of them. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. But the verb right there means two different things, and you cannot reconcile it. It means both things, because both things are true. Whatever you bind, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. In other words, you bind it, and now in heaven it's bound. But what things are you supposed to be binding? The things that have been bound. See? Shall have been bound. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, shall have been loosed. Do you see it? You see, there's two things that are happening at the same time. We're not supposed to be running around telling mountains to fall into the sea just to see it happen. We're supposed to be going around telling mountains that are in people's lives to be gone because they're impacting in a way that God does not intend that person's life. We're supposed to be doing what he's leading us to do, and when we do, there's power in it. And the point that I'm trying to get to right now is there's power. This is, this is the thing most people will tell you. I actually believe this is the second most important thing that Christians don't know, and that is the authority that they have. The, first, the most important thing is they don't really know who God is. And that's why we don't trust him. So that we'll step out in our authority. In trust. See how it works? But the bottom line is, is, is what I want you to see is you have authority and you need to be walking in it. Jesus is telling them, go and walk in this stuff. And by the way, let me just say as a prefigure to what's happening in two weeks. If you don't walk in this, 
do not expect to ever really understand it. Because like they said, if you're just a hearer only and not a doer, you'll never really know it. Right? Okay, now. Now watch this. Don't move around from house to house. Stay in one place, eating, drinking, they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality. Those who work deserve their pay. Here's what he's saying. When you're on mission, don't try and find a better hotel room. Don't try and find somebody that'll feed you a little, you know, that, this guy has a little fountain outside the window, so I'm going to go to his house. Your house was nice, but I'm going to, you see what happens? The whole, it all, you're just another person in the world, and who should listen to you? Because you're just another screwed up person trying to feed your flesh like everybody else, so what's the point of you? And what he's saying is, is when you're on, I got to tell you, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a nice house. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a fountain outside your window. I'm just telling you, when you're on window, when you're on mission, Understand that that worldly stuff has a cost. And the cost is, is that it'll affect your effectiveness. So go, trust. Go where he tells you to go and do whatever he tells you to do and be about what he's doing. Let him do things that you could have never known were going to happen because you trusted that he was, you were making your plans, but he's directing your steps. See it? All right. Now, we're going pretty fast, so, but hang in there with me because it's just about to blow your mind. If you enter town and it welcomes you, eat whatever's set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Now, we're starting to really come home right now. Here's what he's saying. Paul, my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. When Paul made an appeal to any place that he had been, he didn't have to say, don't you understand the logic? Don't you understand the theology? Don't you understand the words? He said, did you see those people that were healed, including you? That's my authority. That's why I'm saying the thing to you that I'm saying now. Well, here's, what, here's the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion are ideas, thoughts about how things are. Some worked out well, some worked out poorly, but either way, it's a game of words and convincing. Here's what Christianity is. A real God doing real things in people's lives. Period. That's why you're Christians. You're not Christians because somebody talked you into it and you're still wondering if it's true because maybe God, you know, will actually show up one day and show you that it's true. You're a Christian because when you accepted him, something happened inside of you and you know how real it was. You know how much it changed you. And you went, well, I need to give myself over to this because that was pretty important. You see it? Something real. And what God is saying, and we're going to get to a wrinkle on this, so if you're really smart and you're really with me, Hang in there because I'm going to get to it. But there's a wrinkle on this. But what I want you to see is, is that when he's telling them to go out and he says, heal them and tell them it's the kingdom. It's me. Heal them and tell them why they were healed. Don't just heal them and walk away. Tell them I'm trying to get to them. I'm trying to let them know. And here's the reason why that is so important. Watch this. If a town refuses to welcome you, go into its streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. 
know this. The kingdom of God is near. Now, how many people are willing to go and to pray with a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, go and willing to pray for them for healing, and if God heals them, tell them Jesus did this? How many people are willing to go to that same person and tell them this is an invitation by God and you need to accept it because if you don't, that itself has consequences? You see it? Now, if they haven't been healed, then you're still just in words. But if you go to somebody who you love and you pray for them and they get healed, do you see what Jesus is saying here? It's the thing that I argued two weeks ago. He's saying you've got to be the fullness of it. They've got to understand something. This healing that I did for them is an invitation. And it is going to be accepted or rejected. There isn't a third way. Do you see it? And you need to make that clear. You need to make that clear. That's the part we haven't been doing in the last few years. Right? Because we don't want to say that kind of thing to somebody that we love so much. Because it just makes them mad. Right? Here's what God is saying. Do you care more about their salvation or your relationship? Now, if you do it, bony fingers stuck in their face, you're going to be judged if you don't accept them. Okay? Then reject. You know, pew, pew. You know, push the eject seat and let them fly away. Okay? Let that person fly away. But if you come to them and say, look, God did something for you, and you need to understand, this is not just the healing that you needed. This is him talking to you. And I'm begging you, respond. If you don't, there's a cost. I want you to know him. I wanted you to be healed, but I want you to know him infinitely more. So receive what he did for you. Say thank you and enter into a relationship with him. Do you see it? See what he's telling his disciples to do? Isn't this a cool passage? Right? I mean, this is phenomenal. That's for somebody who's outside the body. Do note what he says. There are people that are religious, but they reject the power that could make them godly. And what he's saying is, is stay away. There's people who will, by the intellect, try and talk you into a position that isn't real. And he's saying, leave them to me. Okay? Uh, Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I pray for Ryan Meeks right now. I mean, I just am grieving. And I'm not grieving because of what he's doing about the community. That hurts me too. But God, I, for him personally, this is a good man. This is a man who loves you. This is a man who really does believe that he's found you. And in my opinion, and it is my opinion, but it's, I think it's fairly sound, God, he has been deceived and he has entered into something that has got him tangled up inside. And God, this is a good man who's led a lot of people to you and will, I hope and pray, lead thousands more and I'm asking you in Jesus holy and precious name we as a congregation come before and we say we pray for him we pray for him God touch him God open his eyes in Jesus name I cannot share with you all the things that I know but I can share with you not the story 
but I can share with you that God is moving supernaturally in his life to change him. I mean, stories from people that were with him when God did. If I could tell you the story, you'd all go, you've got to be kidding, he didn't get that. But I mean, literally, like sending people and saying things out of the blue. I mean, God is after this young man. Okay? God succeed. Nothing would, nothing would rejoice more. Now, this is love. But it's also truth. Right? That's how you do it. Right there. Not judge him. God, save him. Please. Uh, now we're to the heart of the part that I didn't get to in the first sermon and the part that I told you God wanted me to get to this sermon, so here we are. He says, I assure even wicked Sodom. Everybody know what Sodom is? Sodom is that village that was turned to Saul. I mean, the whole thing was wiped out, right? Because they couldn't find even five righteous people there. Sodom would be better off in the town than you on judgment day. In other words, the people that reject the disciples are going to have it worse than the people of Sodom did. How bad is that? What sorrow awaits you, Corazon and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, two more places that were like Sodom, only not of the same sin, but they were like that, and they were very, very, Tyre was an impenetrable fortress on an on a isthmus island that could not be gotten to. And God just destroyed it. So Tyre and Sidon, both of them, are famous in these people's minds. Their people would have repented of their sins long ago, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads. You remember the story of, of Jonah going to Nineveh? And you remember what their response was, right? They put on sackcloth and ashes. They repented, and God spared them. Well, these, these places had that same opportunity but rejected, and they went down, and he's saying that there's towns in Israel right now that are going down. So he's saying, clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. You people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you're going down to the place of the dead. This is almost his hometown. How long was America here before we became a country? Tell me. A couple hundred years. 200 years. How long has America been a country? Yeah, a little over 200. Yeah. Right? So a total of 400 years in the land, 200 years as a nation. When Jesus is saying this to these disciples, it's roughly 32 A.D. His ministry lasted from roughly 30 A.D. to 33 A.D. So it's roughly 32 A.D. or 31 maybe, but 30, 31, 32 A.D. when he says this to these guys. In 70 A.D., less than one generation away, 40 years is a generation, in less than 40 years, in less time, there'll be people that listen to this live that will watch a country that has been there in the land for 1,400 years and has been a nation in that land except for 70 years in Babylon for a thousand years. Five times longer than we've been a country. When Jesus says these words to these disciples, nobody understands what he's talking about. 
They cannot conceive that Israel, 1,400 years in the land, 1,000 years as a nation, and after all, God's chosen people, supported by him in that land, nobody can even remotely conceive that in less than 40 years, there will be no more Israel. And there will be, except for a handful of people, no more Jews in the land. The Passover, the war starts, the siege starts in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, and the city is swollen to 1.2 million people, which is not the whole inhabitants of the land by any means. Even though they're all supposed to go at the feast, they don't all go every year. There's still several million people more in the land. But the bottom line is 1.2 million people are in the town of Jerusalem, and four years later when it finally ends, only 97,000 of them are alive. 1.1 million people died. One out of 12 survived. And by the time Rome had taken, after they'd taken Jerusalem, they swept through the whole rest of Israel, and it ends with that famous battle in Masada, just a few years after Jerusalem falls. And when Masada goes down, there's no more of any consequence Jews in the land, and there is no more nation of Israel. Justine talked about how in the world could it be that a people could understand, we can't understand what's coming. We can't understand it. Now, listen to me here and listen very carefully. I am not standing before you telling that the end is nigh. I do want to say something. We did Revelations for a year and a half, and one of the main reasons I did it was to show you that it wasn't necessarily going to happen right away, even in our lifetimes. By the time I got done with the Revelations, I changed my mind a little bit, and I said, well, it could, because <laughs> it's just a little frightening how much of all of it's lining up right now. But I'm not telling you that the end is nigh. I'm not telling you that the end of time is, is about on us or anything. I, I am not doing, I, I hate people that do that because they believe they're playing to flesh in order to garner converts. They excite the flesh in a way that causes a worldly thing to happen in Christians. Here's what I believe with all my heart, mind, and soul. If you knew for certain that tomorrow was the final day on earth, you should be living exactly the same way as if you knew for certain that the final day was a thousand years from now. The way that you're living now should be the way that you're living no matter what's going to happen tomorrow, period. If you're not doing whatever God tells you to do, which sometimes is green pastures and still waters and going to a movie, and sometimes is being on mission. If you're not doing what God tells you to do, you're just not doing what God tells you to do, and that's what you're supposed to be doing, right? But I just really want to make this clear. Things are so much more shaky than what anybody understands. Because, see, we have this ability, like the lobster in the pot, to have the temperature get turned up by a degree at a time and not really know that we're being cooked to death. Because it's a little warmer, we've got to take off our jackets, but we can still handle it. The economy, the economy, it's, it's so built on a house of cards. And right now it's working. Praise God. And don't walk around. Don't be the guy that goes to Idaho and takes all that water with you so that when it falls, okay, you're just going to be alone, okay? But you do know that very, very, very reputable economists are telling us that we are facing in the next 20 years a debt meltdown of a consequence that will cause inner city places to be uninhabitable because there won't be an ability to get food there. 
because the farmers won't sell it because there won't be banks and the banking, everything will just erode. Now, I, is that true? I don't think so. I think we'll figure out something. But there are some things that we can't figure out very well. Let me show you something. I'm from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Jackson Hole, Wyoming is basically the park just south of Yellowstone National Park. And you know what makes Yellowstone National Park so cool? It's what they call a caldera. And what a caldera is, is that entire region right there. You see the old faithful down there, the geyser basins and all those hot pots. And you know what makes that that way? Is because, see, what happened was is 600,000 years ago, this thing blew up. Destroyed life on the planet pretty much. Whatever life there was. This thing in Yellowstone blew up and it was so catastrophic that the rest of Yellowstone, all the mountains and everything beside it, all that stuff blew up and vented into the atmosphere and covered the earth in darkness for about a decade, such as to stop vegetation from being able to grow. But the rest of the mountains kind of sank down into this hole. And that hole is lower topographically than the stuff around it. And it's got this huge molten bubble right underneath it. And that's what makes the geysers and the hot pots and all that cool stuff that we go and look at. Now, it so happens that this particular supervolcano is what they call it, because supervolcano is defined as something that will radically alter life on the planet Earth. Devastatingly so. It's, it, 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 has, it has erupted faithfully, like Old Faithful, every 600,000 years. And the last eruption was 640,000 years ago. And Bob Smith, who's a neighbor of ours, is the foremost, one of the foremost geologists in the world and the foremost geologist in this. And he, is work, he, studies, he is a professor at the University of Utah, but he has a house in Jackson because he said, this is it. This is the hot spot for geologists in all the world. He said, what's happening here all the time? Did you know that last summer... For the first time in recorded history, they had to close the roads around the depression around Yellowstone Lake because there was a 10-foot um, lifting of the ground that they were afraid was going to do something, and they had to close the roads because it was distorting the roads, but it was also they were afraid it was going to blow. Now, if it blows, this is going back in history, if it blows, the area in pink here will be pretty much covered in so much ash that there won't be any life. But it won't matter if you're over there on the East Coast because all of that stuff is still floating over you and there's no sunlight and there's no blah, 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 blah. On, 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 on goes. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to do something sensational here. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Life is a lot less certain than what anybody here actually thinks. And if God would come to you and would say... I need you to just simply obey me because you don't know what's happening and I do. And I've got people that I love that I want saved. And I'm not saying that any of us are going to see this in our lifetime. 600,000 years, a little, you know, a nice little point zero 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 one percentage takes us out of our lifetimes. Okay? But is it getting across? 
I think, we, and, and that, by the way, that doesn't have to be the end of time. Here's what's really interesting about the book of Revelation to me. Well, not really interesting, there's so many more interesting things, but this is something that's very interesting. America doesn't show up in that book. Every place else on the face of the earth does. America does not. Most scholars who look at that say, the likelihood is is something has happened so as to make America a non-issue in the world at that point in time. Maybe economic collapse, maybe a caldera, who knows? Again, if anybody walks out of here and says, oh, Kurt said the end is coming, pox on you, okay? <laughs> Was that loving? Was that loving? I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get us to own something. I'm trying to get us to own that these things that we're about, which is helping other people come to know Jesus, the Savior, the way that you and I do is important. As he says, in those days before the flood, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time that Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. Now, this is what's going to happen when the Son of Man comes, and I'm not saying that America is when the Son of Man comes. I'm just saying, who knows? And let's just, while we are still enjoying still waters and green pastures at points in our life, can we just start in, in, enjoying is the wrong word. Can we start being really serious about paths of righteousness for his name's sake? Can we start being really important about being on mission? When he calls us to be on mission, can we do that? Because I'm telling you the likelihood is that there's going to come a moment where you're going to go, man, I wish, I wish I'd have been more on mission. Now, you fools, you know how to interpret the weather signs of the earth and the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present times. This is Jesus telling us that the stuff I'm talking about right now is not to titillate, and it is not to shock and awe, it's not to do anything like that. It's to say, discern with me whether or not this is true. Because in the end, the thing that we are supposed to be doing is anyone who accepts your message is accepting me. Anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. Anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Bringing this incredibly gracious, loving, glorious God to the world. Okay? Now with that in mind, I want us to just understand something which is when we do this, we're not wrestling against Orion Meeks or somebody that we know that's LGBTQ or somebody that we know that's in some other kind of sin. We're not wrestling against them. What the word tells us is we don't wrestle against them, flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present age, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. This is what we're doing battle with. And in fact, what he says, of course, there must be divisions amongst you so that you, have, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. What he's telling us is, is if you think that conflict is not God, you don't know Jesus. There is going to be conflict. There's going to be those things. And what God is, is doing is, is he's going to always be separating so that we can see what really is him and what isn't. Now, I'm going to make all of this, I'm going to bring all this home to you because I want to do this. When the 72 elders returned, they joyfully reported to him, this is who I want you to be. Lord, even the demons obey us when we call out your name. And yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. 
But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. See, keep your attention in the right place. Rejoice for the right reasons. Lord, help me understand if I'm supposed to do this or not. Here's the point that I'm trying to make, other than get serious. Here's the point I'm trying to make. If it's right and true that there's a new season happening, if that's true, is it also possible that our evangelism is going to change? Because here's what the problem is. I was going to read you a letter from Steve Seabury, who is Jenny Yahalkowski's cousin. I might do this now, two weeks from now, but I'm, I just need to not do it right now. So my apologies to Steve and so on. But the bottom line is, is Steve is a missionary in Turkey. And what he's dealing with is, is in, in places like Turkey, you learn pretty quickly that the difference between Christianity and every other religion is, is the things that God does. Because the other religions don't have the God that is active and real and doing something. See it? And so you learn that you need to do healing. And so Steve sent a request out saying, please pray for me to be able to do healings and teach me about it. I'm learning, I'm studying, I want to teach other people about it and so on. But pray for me to be able to do healings. On February 9th, February 25th, February 9th, what is that? A month and what, a week? One month and two weeks. So six weeks later, he sends another email and he starts talking about how the neighbor that he went over to where the woman had... Do you remember it, John? I just don't want to read the whole thing because it's too long. But, but the woman had a, it was, it was a real thing. I mean, it wasn't like she was feeling poorly and now she felt better. It was like an injury. And he prayed for it and it went away. And the husband was like, huh. And the husband had broken his ankle and couldn't walk on it. And so Steve said, I'll pray for that and the pain will go away too. And he prayed for him and the pain went away. And then he went into town to a sales clerk, and she had heart palpitations. And he said, let me pray for you, and that'll go away. And it went away. And then he went to another place where this guy had something else, and he prayed for him, and it went away. Now, these are all people who are being moved strongly towards God. But he, when I tell that story, here's what I want to say. A lot of you are Christians who have been here long enough that you know something. There are people that travel the world. I'm one of them, I more so in the earlier days than now. But I have seen how much more God does miracles in other countries than he does here. And that's been a real wrestling point for me. I've really had to work through that. What's going on there? I'm going to pop through some, you'll see how long it was that I... But I want to show you something I have, along with many other people, have developed a theology that runs something like this. Even Jesus, when he went back to his hometown, said he could not do many works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And I want to say that the difference between these countries where God is just reaching out to people that have never heard of him and a country like ours where people have heard of him is that we're held accountable to the things that we should believe, the things that we should know because of all the miracles that God has done for us in this country. We should know better. And we're held accountable to that. And I want to say that that's a very complicated subject that I'm going into, but I just want to say briefly, that's one of the ways that we can process the difference between what we observe. I'm not talking about hearing stories about how it's better over the fence. I'm talking about being there and seeing it, and then coming here and seeing a difference. 
But here's what happens. If it's a new day, if it's a new day, is God going to start doing miracles through us so that people who really are deceived might have yet another opportunity to see light? Is that possible? Now, I'm telling you, I don't know. And so I'm actually going to do something here. I'm going to send you an email on Wednesday and then another one on Saturday to remind you. And the first, and it's going to just say exactly what it says right here. Is it true that we're in a new season? Because here's the first thing I think we're supposed to be doing. The first thing I supposed to think we're supposed to be doing is being good Bereans. Go home, pray, study the Bible, understand, is the things I'm saying true or am I wrong? Because if I'm wrong, I shouldn't be leading us the way I'm leading us. Do you understand that? And if I'm wrong, I'll change. People have seen that. I do that. But if I'm right, and he's trying to bring us into something that we are not inclined to see because of how we are thinking that everything's going to be the same, if I'm right, this is important all of a sudden on a new degree, isn't it? This isn't just coming and listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning. This is important. And so if I'm right, then if I'm right, does it bear witness with you that God is going to start? This is a second question, right? Just because it's a new day doesn't mean God's going to do more miracles here in America. It doesn't mean that. But is it true, perhaps, that God is going to start using us more like Paul, where he says, rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Is, it, is there something of evangelism that is being open to us today to be able to move in a way that Jesus was instructing his disciples, namely, go and bring to them a real kingdom, a real God who does real things in their life. Go and be an instrument for me to produce the fruit that I want. Because if that's true, then you don't have to worry about it. God sent you. He's going to go before you. And just like the disciples did when they came back, and they said, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He said, oh Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. I passed over scripture, by the way, which was in there, where he said, I saw it. When they came back, he was rejoicing, and he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. When they went out and did what he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And then he says this, Father, please you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father. No one truly knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then, and this is the part I want to leave you with, to just, just, just inspire you. Then when they were alone, he turned to the disciples and he said, Blessed are the eyes that see what you're seeing. Blessed are the eyes that see what you're seeing. Because you see... I tell you, many prophets and kings longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. And I just want to tell you, I think this is what God has for us. What we think is, oh, it would be really cool to, to heal that person that's got this horrible thing happening in their life. That's where we have our attentions. Where he has his attention is, 
I'm doing something to bring them to me. And we get to be part of that. And people throughout the ages have longed to see the fulfillment that I believe it's possible that God is saying is ours. We get to be the instruments to do this in this day. Do you feel ready for that? Because I don't. But you know what? God can equip you. In the season that you need it, God can equip you if you pay attention, if you work on it. So, Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before the throne, and we say to you, God, that we want to be equipped. I mean, we want to be equipped. We want to be empowered. We want to be anointed. We want to be raised up. We want to be sent. Here am I, send me. Here are we, send us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, let us see the glory not for ourselves, but so that people that we love that are in such great need and great darkness and don't even know it, that they can see the light that you have shown us, that they can come to know you, God, who are so loving, and that they will get to be with you for eternity, as are we. Oh God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, Jesus, you said, I did not lose one. God, let that be said of us. Not one that was entrusted to us, not one that was entrusted to us be lost. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we seal this now with a communion. In the, there's two cups, so make sure you grab them both. In the lower cup is this body that was broken for me. In the lower cup is the brokenness that is me. In the lower cup is all the things that I've done to not actually be where you wanted me to be. <laughs> and that's me, not somebody else, me. And boy, if you're here and you do not know the Lord, what a fantastic time to recognize that your life is not what God can heal it to be. Because he was broken that I might be made whole. By his stripes I was healed. And so I thank you, Jesus, whom I love with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Who we love with all our heart, mind, souls, and strength. And we lift up this cup in which is the brokenness of our life, and we put our finger in there, and we break that, recognizing. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for taking that brokenness upon yourself that we might be made whole. Take this together, would you please? now in Jesus' spectacular name, God, we raise this cup in which is the life, the fullness of everything I've been talking about, you've been trying to say through me, the fullness of even more than what you've been said, able to say through me, the fullness of everything was accomplished in a moment on the cross. When that blood was shielded, that life was poured, shed, that life was poured out, and that life is now available to us. It's already been done. We simply need to walk in it. So God, we take this cup together saying, let your life become mine. In Jesus' name, take together. Hallelujah.